This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. When you think about accessible industries, farming's probably not the first one to jump to mind. So what happens if you always dreamed of being a farmer, but everyone's telling you your disability means you can't? Well, you're about to hear how a few mates proved everyone wrong. That amazing story coming up later. Also ahead, we're checking in with young veterans ahead of Anzac Day. First, though. Hack. It is the most significant work that's been done since the Second World War, looking in a comprehensive way at what is needed. On Triple Jack. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when I see breaking news banners on the TV announcing Australia's entering the missile age, our biggest defence overhaul since World War II... It's easy to feel a little anxious. The Prime Minister launching the government's Defence Strategic Review in Canberra today, saying it'd make Australia more self-reliant, more prepared, more secure. The review is warning Australia can't rely on our geography anymore as protection. Basically, more countries are able to reach us if they want, so we need to be ready. We're going to be spending more on defence, and we're already spending billions of dollars So is today's announcement over the top, or maybe it's long overdue? Let's ask an expert. Melissa Conley-Tyler is with the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue, and she's with us now. Melissa, welcome to Hack. You've been poring over this strategic review, Melissa. It's talking about Australia entering a new military age, missiles getting ready. What do you think? Should we be more or less worried? Oh, you might have your microphone turned off, Melissa. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Um, look, I'm going to take you to my favourite sentence in the whole 110 pages of it. It says, there is at present only a remote possibility of any power contemplating an invasion of our continent. Okay, so let's take that as a start. Um, what it's worried about is, as you say, the way that geography is um, is is contracting. You know that cyber attacks. Um, if you look at attacks on trade routes, if you look at missiles, it's important that we can deter other countries at a distance. And look, I read this and I'm less anxious because I'm someone who likes to see a plan. So if you were thinking, for example, you know you want to keep your house or your apartment safe. You know, you look at things, you say, do I want a security screen? Do I want a window lock? Do I want an alarm? And once you've done that, I hope you can essentially put it out of your mind. So unless you're a person who's specifically looking for a job in defence, I think you can regard this as the government doing its job for Australians. Okay. So what are some of the big changes that have been announced? Mm. Look, there's a few. One is this idea, and you'll love this term, impactful projection. The idea is that we hold anyone who wants to threaten us further away. They don't come all the way towards us, but we deter them. We make them scared of coming towards us further. And so that's things like having um, missiles that can go from our shore to the sea. It's having um, longer hypersonic missiles, et cetera. Um, I mean, the basic idea of of any defence is that you're spending the money so you don't have to go to war. You want to deter other countries. You want them to look at this and say, ah, this country, it's too, you know, too difficult to attack. So um, a good colleague of mine at Lowy Institute actually talks about it as, you know, your echidna strategy. You're trying to keep them further away with those nice big spikes. 
Is it, though, the fact that if we do this, if we start boosting capabilities, expense, that neighbours will start doing the same and they'll say, oh, we've got to spend a bit more too? Mm. And look, that's one of the real dangers. It's a security dilemma that all countries have. You spend a bit of money to feel safer, but what if that makes your, your, your neighbour feel less safe? And so the other half of the puzzle is actually the diplomacy side. And, and the thing I love most about this document is it talks about, diplo- about diplomacy and defence both being essential, both being um, crucial to our future. It's not just about lots and lots of money into, into you know, more hardware. It's about people who can talk and build relationships within the region, ways that we can head off problems before they become conflict. And so, you know, in this document, for me, this is a watershed. This is a key defence planning document. And it says, spend more money on the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. I never expected to see that. Yeah, right. Okay. So that's a big step forward, you're saying. A couple of things that I found interesting as well were the comments that Australia, you know, doesn't have the same geographic benefits as it used to. Do you think we've relied on that in the past for too long, just thinking, oh, we're out of the way, we're protected? I think it's changing technology, as simple as that, you know, and things really do change. Um, we used to, one of the things in there is looking at um, uh, surface ships, you know, that just glide along the water and go to wherever you need them to go. Now, they used to be absolutely fantastic militarily. They're becoming less useful because the missile systems that target them can have them being sitting ducks, you know, and it's the same on something like submarines. You know, they're useful right now, but at some point in the future, maybe our detection technology will get so good that they're not what we need anymore. So if you're looking at things like, you know, missiles at cyber, you've just got to keep adapting to the technology and say, what do we need and how do we get it? And again, one of the things I like about this is it goes from saying we'll have a balanced force, which was like code for we'll have a little bit of everything, to saying we have to have a focused force. We have to say, what are the things we seriously need? And it's dropped a lot of things and said, nope, we're not going to go for those different tools. We're going to say we don't need as many of them. What we need is this. I found that very reassuring. Melissa, I mean, just briefly, we don't have a lot of time, but I also saw a report out saying today around the world, military spending has reached an all-time high, more than $3 trillion Australian dollars last year. That was from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, and they're saying it's because of an increasingly insecure world. Do you reckon that's going to continue to escalate in the years ahead? Look, there's a danger of it. And and I think we have to think about security more widely. Security is about a whole lot of things, not just about military hardware. It's about are there, you know, what are we doing with global health and pandemics? What are we doing with potential for state collapse? What are we doing with climate change and the effect that that's having? So when I think about all our tools of statecraft and how we keep Australia safe, that's why I put the development side, the diplomacy side, just as strongly as I put the defence. I think they're all absolutely crucial. Um, And what I love about this is I'm hearing that in the defence side. I'm hearing them say, we understand that this is not a job for defence alone. You know, you need other things like diplomacy and development to keep Australia safe. We love your insight into it. Melissa Connolly-Tyler with the Asia-Pacific Development Diplomacy and Defence Dialogue. Thank you for joining us on Hack. Thanks again, Dave. Hack. Most veterans I speak to, we, we sit and talk about Anzac Day being a day for us to remember the fallen, those that went out and never made it home. On Triple J.
Yeah, it's obviously timely that we're speaking about all of this defence spending and strategy because tomorrow's Anzac Day, our National Day of Remembrance for those who served and died in wars. There are about half a million veterans in Australia. Maybe you're one of them. Another 85,000 people are in the Defence Forces right now. So how are younger veterans connecting with Anzac Day? But also, how is this new generation of veterans connecting and supporting each other? Well, our reporter, Miles Holbrook-Walk, has been visiting a cafe in Darwin that's trying to do things a bit differently. There's a quiet little back street in Darwin and on it is this really colourful cafe. It's called the Mad Snake Cafe. And today they're doing something rather different. Instead of just serving coffees and raisin toast or banana bread to customers, they're actually hosting veterans. But it's not like an RSL or anything like that, really. It's actually very, very different. And I'm actually going to go and say good day to some of the people there and get a bit of an idea of who they are. Now, as soon as you come in, you just get this sense that there's posters everywhere. There's a little gremlin on the top of a bookcase that's been converted into this storage facility. Yeah, so even though it's a place where veterans do congregate, so you'd expect it to be full of military memorabilia, but no, it's uh, very sci-fi, very pop culture. Shane's been coming to the coffee catch-ups here for a year. He's the first to admit the setup is pretty out there. Lots of Star Wars, so I'm actually a Star Wars geek myself. And then obviously, uh, you know, we've got Indiana Jones on, on the wall. Shane was an infantryman for 12 years and deployed overseas. He says life in the armed forces is so regulated that when you come out, it's hard to readjust. Your meal times are structured, your wake-up time structured, what you've got to wear is structured. So then having that opportunity to effectively do what you want can be quite challenging for others, whether that's finding employment, even just being out in the wider community, being a part of that community can be difficult. And when he left, Shane admits he did carry a lot of scars. I think many do struggle, many like myself, uh, they're physically and mentally broken as well, so that has its own challenges. At the time there wasn't enough social activities for veterans up here and um, probably needed someone to talk to myself. <laughs> so yeah, I just evolved. Started off with a few of us each Friday and now we have, most Fridays we have a full house and all different types of veterans, different defences, different ages, different operations, so it's good, it's a good turnout. That's Sam. He started this group for younger vets looking to connect with others after leaving the Defence Forces. Started off with a few of us each Friday and now we have, most Fridays we have a full house and all different types of veterans, different defences, different ages, different operations, so it's good, good turnout. Right now, a Royal Commission is looking at defence and veteran suicides and it's already making some recommendations on how to better support vets. It's hard to know with total certainty how many people have died by suicide, but one count puts it at 648 people. Already, the Commission's interim report has uncovered the Department of Veterans Affairs had been counterproductive. Veteran-turned-politician Jackie Lambie has been highly critical of the Department's treatment of veterans. costing us lives. It's costing families. It's costing people who gave everything they had, everything they could to this bloody country. When it comes to Anzac Day, it's a proud and important time for many young vets, but not all of them. Adam Giuliani is another regular at the Mad Snake and says at first he didn't get around it. And when I got out, yeah, I was just like 
didn't really sort of engage, didn't wear me medals, blah, blah, blah. He says a lot of the places designed to support veterans didn't feel right for him. I don't know, the way the RSL brand was run, and it didn't really fit. It got away from supporting veterans, and I'm more worried about membership in regards to just making money out of pokies and beers and palmy, so it was... It wasn't my sort of scene. Adam has changed his views over time and now he's really proud to take part in Anzac Day events. Gordon Davies is 25 and he's less than two years out of the army. And he says he finds the day really important because he can connect with other vets. I think it's really important to rely on your mates, especially veterans, young veterans. Uh, the only people who truly understand what service is, is other service people. He knows Anzac Day can be difficult, but come tomorrow, there's no doubts where he'll be. I'll be standing on the side of the road wearing my medals and congratulating our current serving men and women marching proudly down the road. I'll look at them with, with absolute fondness and, and think I was there a few years ago and, you know, hopefully catch up with them for a beer. Away from the march and back at the cafe, Adam says no matter how someone marks the day, it's still really important to have a place like the Mad Snake because it's there all year round and it works a kind of magic that's changed veterans' lives up here in Darwin. Yeah, you walk through the door and no one judges. It just allows people to be relaxed. It's not clinical. We don't come in here and get a form shoved in your face. You share your experience and we've got an ability then to, because we've been through the system, to be able to connect people if they're really struggling with the services that are out there. Hack on Triple J. Miles Holbrook walk with that story from Darwin. And hey, let me know, are you a young vet? How are you planning to mark Anzac Day? What does it mean to you? The text line 0439757555. We are getting some messages already. Someone says, 33-year-old female veteran here. I sought mental help through open arms and had services terminated after 10 sessions. I didn't feel like I made any progress in that time. Look, that's really disappointing to hear. We're about to get into some of those big topics and issues about the support that young veterans need. Also, just a reminder here, if you are, you know, needing a bit of help now, or if this has raised anything for you, you can go to Lifeline. Lifeline's on 13 11 14. I've got with me now Brody Moore. Now, Brody was just 17 when he joined the army, served for six years, and was one of the youngest Aussies in Afghanistan when he was there in 2010. Hey, Brody, thanks for coming on Hack. G'day, Dave. Thanks for having me on. There'll be a lot of younger veterans out there commemorating tomorrow as always. Uh, I'm sure you'll be one of them. Brody, you were so young when you were in Afghanistan, as I said before, just a teenager, basically. Do you think you were prepared for how traumatic that experience would be? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I was a teenager. Um, I was uh, probably a bit naive in terms of what I was getting myself in for. I think you obviously have that confidence when you're young. And, uh, you know, I often reflect on some of the Anzacs, you know, going to Gallipoli, lying about their age at, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. It's pretty hard to, to fathom. But, you know, I think that the experiences that I had in Afghanistan really gave me um, a lot of attributes and skill sets that uh, have made me the man that I am today and, and I've been able to use them in other areas of my life. 
How hard is it readjusting to life? Yeah, obviously, um, I think they're two different, slightly different conversations. Like one is, you know, veterans, uh, you know, ADF members getting back from deployment and what that is like in that transition. And then the other conversation is is what it's like for ADF members transitioning to civilian life. You know, I think when you're coming back uh, from deployment, it's hard to adjust. You know, um, I often get imposter syndrome even having these conversations because I went on one deployment to Afghanistan. But over the last couple of decades, we've obviously been in conflict, back-to-back conflicts, obviously East Timor, uh, then Iraq, then Afghanistan. So you've got some special operations soldiers out there that have been on deployments back-to-back for the last couple of decades. And they're kind of the silent heroes, in my opinion, of society. Uh, And you can imagine the toll that that takes on them, uh, readjusting after being switched on for four months, six months, nine months, however long your deployment is and not really switching off and then coming back to society and, you know, trying to reintegrate into the norm uh, with your family who have obviously got into a routine whilst you're away and then you're, you know, thrust back into that. Obviously, then there's another conversation about transitioning into civilian life which a lot of veterans struggle with. Obviously, they've had this uh, group identity and purpose that is much bigger than themselves while they're in defence. And I think a lot of veterans struggle with finding what's next for them and, and you know, finding their, their new purpose and individual identity. What were the things that you think helped you in that readjustment? Personally, I think it's really important to you know, form, you know, new relationships. Um, You know, when I transitioned out of the ADF, um, you know, and I now understand this because obviously I became a registered nurse once I got out of the Defence Force, but how important, you know, psychosocial well-being is. And, you know, it's really important that, um, you know, veterans engage in the community and form new relationships and form new community and purpose. Uh, I personally did this through uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and I encourage other veterans to do, you know, find something like martial arts or we'll find a hobby that you're interested in. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with young veteran Brody Moore about Anzac Day, about support for young vets in general in the lead up to Anzac Day. Brody, the statistics around suicide and young veterans are heartbreaking and we've been hearing a lot about those with this Royal Commission that's underway. How easy is it to fall into these holes? Because I imagine in your own experience, there've probably been people you've known who seemed okay and then they weren't. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people suffer in silence. Um, I think it is quite easy to fall into these holes because you really have to try and find um, the right people to support you to navigate the rehabilitation and compensation legislation. This legislation, which is going under a big reform at the moment and is one of the uh, recommendations in the interim report into veteran suicide, you know, this legislation is really complex. It's really convoluted. It's hard for veterans to navigate the Department of Veteran Affairs and understand what they're entitled to or how to access their entitlements. Are you hopeful that this Royal Commission, this big inquiry is going to make some big changes, is going to help in some way? 
I am hopeful. Uh, hopefully, it's not all talk. Uh, you know, I know the the federal government is is trying to implement some change, but I don't think that change is really happening um, with enough urgency. If I'm honest, um, you know, at the moment there's forty three thousand compensation claims, individual compensation claims in the Department of Veteran Affairs. So these are you know veterans have submitted claims for physical or mental injuries that they believe were caused because of their service. So they can't access their full entitlements until these claims are processed and a determination has been made. So when it comes to mental health, um, you know, a veteran can get some mental health treatment under what's called non-liability health cover, as in the def- they don't have to prove that they have that mental health injury and they can access some treatment. But they can't get all their other entitlements. You know, speed of access to rehabilitation is incredibly important and uh, they can't access their compensation that them or their family might need. There are other things like, you know, organisations like the RSL, which has obviously been a massive support to return to service people in the past. But as we heard a bit earlier, a lot of young vets maybe don't seem that connected to it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that might be the case. Um, you know, I, I think veterans and, and maybe the contemporary veteran is, is looking elsewhere for um, ex-service organisations, like I said before, like veteran groups that are, you know, getting together and going surfing or getting together and doing mixed martial arts or these other activities that, you know, maybe aren't so aligned with, uh, you know, the um, the older generation and, and um and the RSL, um, you know, not saying that veterans don't like to get together and, and have a beer together, but, um, you know, a lot of these veteran uh, RSL organisations, you often see pokies and, and, you know, drinking and that kind of culture. I don't think that's necessarily very productive. I was going to say that it's a shift, right, in the, ter- in the sense that, in, you know, in decades gone by, that's how some people might have dealt with issues, rightly or wrongly. Um, they might have got together. There might have been a lot of drinking. There might have been a lot of gambling involved. Are you saying that we are starting to see this big shift away into more proactive methods to help people? I think we're going in the right direction. I think we're still a long way off on on being there, but exactly like you said, David, is that proactive approach that is needed. I think there's also a disconnect between the ADF and the DVA uh, in terms of, you know, the care that we need to provide tomorrow needs to be based off what the veterans or the ADF members are suffering from today. So um, I think more a, a more proactive approach while ADF members are in service in terms of setting them up for this psychosocial well-being and, and vocational support and, and medical support, which is the kind of framework of, of rehabilitation. Well, hey, Brody Moore, appreciate you being so open and honest with us. Thanks for coming on Hack. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. And we got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, as a spouse of a veteran who's still serving, it's disturbing to witness the lack of support and understanding for returning soldiers. I feel the ADF try to do the best, but they don't understand the holistic needs of integrating into life. Another person who served for decades says, you know, I served in Afghan and and two other ops. I have to say defence has come a long way. Look, if you do need help, remember Lifeline 13 11 14. There's always someone to talk to. Open arms as well. Veterans and Families Counselling 1800 011 046. Hack. This should prove that anyone can work in the industry regardless of what you need. It's having the tools to do it, I guess. On Triple J. Agriculture, known for its innovation and the ability of farmers to adapt to new challenges, 
But you're about to hear from one man who's had to overcome more obstacles than most and could have have some solutions to what is an issue around the world, accessibility in agriculture. This is the story of how two strangers became best mates who were often told what they wanted to achieve was impossible, but they were intent on proving everybody wrong. Our North Queensland reporter, Angel Parsons, has this story. Achieving what we've achieved with the harvest has proved that we can do a lot of things that people say you can't. So Yeah, everyone else saying, oh, no, you can't do that. <laughs> well, it's true. It was. It was. How are you going to do that? What about this? Just shut up and let us do it. Like, yeah. Paul Skembry's office is here inside the cab of a harvester, sitting high up above tall green fields of sugarcane ready to be cut. Got me that shit. <laughs> Farming is in his blood. His great-grandfather set up the family farm just outside of Mackay in the 1920s. Um, just like any normal farm boy, we just loved the land and loved machinery. And yeah, I remember following Dad around like a little shadow, just sitting on tractor mudguards with him. And yeah, just wanted to be part of it all. Just, yeah, grew up loving it. And he always wanted a career outdoors on the land. But for a long time, Many thought that that was impossible. So I just went for a ride with me cousins and, yeah, I remember being probably 10 metres away from the corner and I don't remember anything after that. Wake up 10 days later in intensive care. You know, here he was, 16-year-old. One minute he could walk, next minute he couldn't. I went to sit up and I couldn't and I thought, oh, we got dramas here. Really surreal, it didn't really, yeah, it felt like a bad dream really, but you just never really woke up. Well, as a father, I was distraught in the initial stages of it. Uh, We weren't sure whether he was going to make it. He was quite seriously ill for some time, but as it became patently clear that he wouldn't walk again, uh, clearly I thought that he would not have a future as a farmer. And that was the mistake I made. He was recovering in hospital down in Brisbane for five months before finally returning home to the farm. And one night at two o'clock in the morning in my bedroom, I was woken up by welding flashes on the bedroom walls. And it was Paul in the shed with a welder and oxy because he wanted to perfect this device to lift him out of the wheelchair into the tractor. Eventually, Paul made some modifications to his dirt bike and was back riding again. Definitely scared. I was petrified. I remember they were holding me, ready to launch me, and I just remember just, like, the fear of it all, and it's put me here, but I could get back out of here, back up on the bike. And by this point, he'd had his fair share of life-changing moments, right? But, of course, another one came, this time in the form of a pretty blunt question from a stranger at the pub. Yeah, you come over and say, oh, so you're on a bike. What sort of idiot are you? Well, you see shit. The stranger was Sean Wells. He'd seen a Facebook video of Paul back on the bike and had a million questions for him when he recognised him at the bar. I just sort of asked, just started quizzing him how he'd, what he'd done to the motorbike and how he did certain things. And How did you do this? Well, and then we started talking and, yeah, that's where it all started. Ten years later, their friends and colleagues who've designed what's believed to be a first for the sugarcane industry. It's the end of the day and Paul's parked up his harvester. Sean fetches his wheelchair from the car and brings it to the base of the huge machine. Another good day, Shoot. Yep, thank you, mate. 
but thanks to a hydraulic lift system the pair engineered and fitted to the harvester last year, that's pretty much the only assistance Paul needs to be able to operate it. Yeah, it's design phase, there was a lot of people doubting us and yeah. And so what were you saying back to people? Hold my beer and watch this. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Yeah. Here's Paul's dad, also named Paul, who, by the way, massive name in Kane. He's kind of a rock star in the industry who was with the lobby group Kane Growers for nearly 40 years. And watching his son's journey, even he learnt a lot. Uh, it surprised me, surprised everybody. Well, by its very nature, agriculture means that there are things on the move, machinery on the move, tractors and so forth. There is uh, obviously that disadvantage, but what I've found is that there is no limit to the amount of innovation and ingenuity of people to design things to allow people to work uh, on farms. I think to be truthful is always the case that agriculture could be doing more. And, and I guess that every industry could be doing more. So Paul and Sean hope this shows what is possible. Yeah, you're nearly basically like anyone else up there. You can, yeah, I didn't feel really restricted or anything or limited. Yeah, once I got up in there, I felt like I could operate just as good as anyone else. He tries to do things that are impossible for anyone and still tries to do them, so, and have a laugh along the way. I guess that's the main thing too. If you're not smiling while you're doing it, well, if you're not having fun, well, what's the point? Hack on Triple J. Great story there by Angel Parsons and getting a lot of comments on this. You can check it out if you want to see what's happened here. You want to see all the modifications these guys made, how it all works. The full story's on ABC's Landline, my favourite show on TV. It's on iView. You can go check it out. You can also go check out Triple J Hack's Instagram. We've got a bit of a video there. You can see how it all works. Got a lot of comments coming through. Jacob says, good to see nothing is holding them back. Another person, inspiring, innovative, practical. Congratulations, you both showed them. What an awesome story. And that is all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. We will be off the airways for Anzac Day. There'll be no podcast for Anzac Day, but we'll be back on Wednesday. I'll catch you then. See ya. Hack on Triple J.